I'm Richard Parker. I'm senior fellow here at the center, and this is one in our regular brown bag series. Uh, we're honored to have Joel Simon of the Committee to Protect Journalists with us here today to look back at the uh, the, the status of uh, journalists' health and welfare. I guess in a in the most immediate uh, and meaningful sense of that term, not retirement benefits, which are another whole issue, or employment, which is yet another issue, but rather the physical security and the ability to operate freely. Um, and the, the floor is yours. Okay. Thank you very much for that. And uh, it's really a pleasure for me to be here and to uh, uh, speak to such uh, in informed um, uh, and knowledgeable audience. And in fact, one of the things that I'd like to do is to take advantage of the um, enormous expertise assembled uh, around this table to not only uh, tell you a little bit about what um, uh, we're doing, but also ask uh, you for um, some input in uh, grappling with some of, some of the challenging issues we're facing. But before I do that, I want to start by, um, you know, the timing uh, is uh, ideal uh, for us to kind of look back at the last year and then talk about um, uh, the recent developments over the last several weeks, particularly um, in Tunisia, Egypt, now Bahrain, Libya, throughout the Middle East, and the role that journalism's played in, um, uh, uh, well, it's played a variety of roles in terms of um, creating uh, an atmosphere in which these kinds of revolutions are taking place. But I'll get to that in a moment. Um, last week, we launched this book that you see around the table, Attacks on the Press. This is something we do every year. It's a summary, an assessment of press freedom conditions globally. Uh, we did a launch. Uh, we did an event at the United Nations. We also did regional events, one in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where we spoke about the rise of censorship in uh, uh, Latin America, return of censorship, you could call it. Uh, we did um, uh, an event in uh, Brussels, where we spoke about uh, some of the issues confronting the EU, particularly Russia's abysmal press freedom record, uh, recent controversy over Hungarian press law mm -hmm. that uh, I can get to as well, um, which hung Hungary's uh, as the rotating presidency of the EU, and in conjunction with their uh, presidency, they, they um, have uh, passed a really uh, onerous uh, press <coughs> law that we're very concerned about. And uh, we did other events in uh, Nairobi, uh, and we were going to do one in Cairo, uh, but uh, the uh, press corps was a little distracted there, and uh, uh, our, uh, our um, Middle East program coordinator happens to be Egyptian, and uh, uh, at that point we didn't feel he was going to get past the airport uh, because he was uh, a very high-profile pain in the neck. Uh, uh, but anyway, um, so here are some of the trends we observed. Um, one is that um, Pakistan was the world's most deadly country for the press last year. Uh, that's something we hadn't seen before. And one of the things that surprised us was that most journalists who are killed around the world, something like 70%, um, are murdered. That's the leading cause of death for the journalists you know, who, who are killed in the line of duty. But most of the journalists killed in Pakistan were actually victims of suicide attacks in which they were not the direct targets. They were covering. Uh, the activities of politicians and uh, other figures, and they were caught up particularly in the secondary attacks. So there'd be one attack, then when the first responders would arrive on the scene, there'd be a second one. Journalists would be caught up in that. Uh, six of the eight journalists who were killed in Pakistan were killed in such incidents. Uh, Pakistan's also a very deadly country, <coughs> murderous country for journalists. 
two journalists were murdered. Um, I think about <coughs> there's about 11 or 12 journalists have been murdered in Pakistan since the murder of Danny Pearl. Uh, but Danny Pearl is the only name anyone really knows and the only case where there's been um, any justice whatsoever. The rest of those cases, are uh, there's complete impunity. Um, the other thing we documented was uh, an increase in the number of journalists in prison around the world. And that number stands at 145. Two countries uh, topped the list. It was a tie, China and Iran. China is a uh, 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 long-standing uh, uh, leader of, uh, on this list, but Iran uh, surged to the top uh, in the uh, aftermath of the uh, crackdown following the 2009 uh, disputed elections. So that is, a, a, again, a very troubling trend. And the number would have been even higher, except for a very positive development, which is that 17 journalists who were in prison in Cuba were released. Uh, these journalists were jailed in the aftermath of, uh, uh, basically, right after the um, Iraq invasion got underway, Cuba launched a crackdown internal on internal dissidents, rounded up dozens of people, including about 30 journalists. Uh, they've been held since then, and it was only after years of campaigning, particularly pressure from the uh, Spanish government and the Catholic Church in Cuba, that these 17 journalists were released. So that was the breakthrough. Um, as I mentioned, censorship is making a return in Latin America. This is a very interesting trend and something we're very troubled by. It's a very different kind of censorship, and there are different reasons for it in different places. In Brazil, what you're seeing is judicial censorship. You're seeing uh, political figures and prominent figures who bring libel action can also get courts can often get courts to grant injunctions against further coverage of their activities. Uh, uh, Brazil, <coughs> believe it or not, has one of the highest incidents of uh, takedown of web content. So in other words, if you go to court and you allege, you know, I've been defamed by this, the court can order content to be removed um, uh, from the web, and this has been a source of, of deep concern for us. Um, in Venezuela, you have a much more sort of traditional kind of censorship uh, in that the government is taking more and more uh, direct <coughs> action against journalists. One of the things that President Chavez did in uh, Venezuela was um, essentially there was a there was a lot of uh, there's a very high crime rate in Venezuela, and some newspapers were publishing very graphic images to illustrate the problem, including some images from a morgue. And uh, the president uh, basically decreed that. Um, uh, this kind of uh, coverage, you know, that, that these kinds of images were simply too graphic. It could not be presented in newspapers, and basically, that's been the outcome. Um, the other thing is that um, online journalists, and I'm going to get to this in a moment, they constitute half of all journalists in prison now around the world. An increasing number of journalists who are killed in the line of duty worked online. So, one of the things that we've done uh, is hired a, a um, internet advocacy coordinator whose primary responsibility is to advocate not only for the <coughs> rights of individual journalists who work online, but for the medium itself, to keep the internet free for journalism because as journalism converges online, uh, we recognize that the future of press freedom is online and keeping the internet free as a platform for journalism is where the battle is now in terms of press freedom and that's something we're very focused on. 
So those are some of our key findings. Um, I want to turn now to some of the developments uh, that have uh, taken place in the Middle East. And I think that the debate that has been playing out there really is around social media and its role. And that's a very um, hot topic, a very important topic, uh, and uh, has inspired um, a lot of uh, polemics on both sides of the argument. There are people out there who are sort of saying, you know, this social media is essentially what caused you know, the uprising in Tunisia, the uprising in Egypt, um, and that they would not have taken place without these new platforms. Um, the, the reality is, of course, that we've seen in other parts of the world, like Iran, you know, every time now there's, a, there's, there's some sort of political uprising, um, there's a lot of weight given to the influence of social media. And one of the things we've seen in the past is obviously it play on in Egypt, but in Iran, you know, it can work both ways. Um, social media is great for constructing networks, but it's also great for dismantling networks. And the Iranian government learned this in a hurry because you detain someone, you get their Facebook password. Pretty easy if you're an Iranian intelligence operative. That's not hard to do. Um, and then you find out who their friends are, and then you get their friends and you get their password, and you bring their friends in and you <coughs> torture them. And you do what you have to do, uh, and you can dismantle a network pretty easily. You can see who people are communicating with, what they're saying to one another. Very effective tool for dismantling networks. The other thing that you know this has been widely publicized. Um, the Iranian government engaged in essentially crowdsourcing of protesters, putting pictures of protesters up on uh, websites and asking people to help identify people. They uh, infiltrated uh, and tracked people using Facebook um, and other forms of social media. So we know it cuts both ways. I mean, I think somebody sort of suggested it's like asking, you know, what influence has the telephone had, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, 80 years ago on, on social protests. Obviously, it facilitates communication, but, uh, and, and, you know, there are many, many examples of that, uh, but um, it's a much more complex issue, and it obviously works both ways. The other thing that I find really, uh, I mean, uh, you know, if the Egypt was, you know, not a Twitter revolution, one of the things that was fascinating, though, from my perspective, was how Twitter transformed the experience of journalists covering. I mean, it, it, I, I sort of, so it, was, it might not have been a Twitter revolution for Egyptians, but it was definitely a Twitter revolution for journalists. Hmm. Uh, because the way that people who were following developments in Egypt were following, were able to follow them, so many journalists were maintaining <coughs> Twitter feeds just as individuals. So that if you were following Ben Wiedemann, uh, on Twitter, you knew pretty much what his editors knew because he was tweeting it, you know, at the same time he was telling his editors. Uh, you know, you could follow, you could pick the journalists you want to follow, and these were journalists. These were professional journalists. These were not citizen journalists. These were um, uh, professional journalists, and you knew them. You knew their reputation, so you could give a lot of weight to what they were, the information they were providing. And from our vantage point, from CPJ's vantage point, it allowed us to document essentially in real time 
these incidents and document many more cases than we would have been able to document previously. We documented 76 detentions and like 53 assaults in a matter of days because we would get, you know, we would just follow these tweets of journalists who would say, I'm approaching a military checkpoint, I've just been detained. Or, you know, Egyptian security have entered our bureau, they are taking our cameras. And we could respond in real time, we could disseminate that information, we could put out press releases, we would get phone calls from journalists, you know, asking us for responses to developments that had happened three minutes ago. And we would have reasonably complete information. So it transformed the way we covered. And the other thing is, uh, you didn't see stories, you know, like, remember not that long ago when stories uh, used to break uh, in print and then they broke on the web, they rarely broke in print. Well, now they really rarely break on websites. Really, you know, if you're talking about incremental developments, they're probably breaking on Twitter if you're following it. So there was a real um, uh, transformation in the way that um, the media uh, covered uh, and, and people followed events. Um, I've got a couple more things to say, but maybe we just want to, should I just, how should I, should I, Run through a couple more points and then... Go through a couple more points and then let's turn okay. into it. Okay, fine. So I just want to make a couple more points about some of the issues that we're grappling with in terms of how do we make the defense of press freedom more relevant to um, a global population and get beyond uh, journalists themselves who have an obvious interest in this issue. Um, one of the things that I kept thinking about when I was watching um, Egyptian security uh, forces, you know, detain journalists and uh, smash their cameras and do other things to prevent them from covering events in Egypt. And, and I want to make a, a, another point, which is that if you, if you look at what's happening in Iran and you look at what's happening in Libya and you look at the level of violence in both those places and the level of repression, you'll notice that there essentially are no international journalists there. Uh, and that opens the door for, you know, greater violence. Not that the situation in Egypt wasn't violent and horrific, but there was no question that the presence of international journalists was a, was a very strong deterrent, uh, and that the goal of the Egyptian government was essentially to uh, eliminate the ability of journalists to cover events and then and to, to pave the way for a brutal crackdown. And perhaps one of the reasons that didn't materialize is because they were not successful ultimately in suppressing uh, the ability of journalists to actually cover the event, whereas in Iran and Libya, uh, they have. Um, these are obviously more even more brutal governments, but, but I think there's a correlation. Uh, but the point is, when I was watching that, I kept thinking to myself, you know, when they smash the one cam camera, they carry out these kinds of things, uh, they're violating the human rights of that journalist but they're also violating my human rights or the human rights of anyone who wants to be informed about events because international law <coughs> guarantees the right to seek and receive information. So it's different from other human rights in that the right to receive that information is also guaranteed and is also a fundamental human right. And so um, uh, essentially there's a collective right to receive that information and, and if authorities um, impede that right um, people who are not directly affected by the violence also have a stake. And that's something to think about and something I'd like to kind of argue more broadly, uh, perhaps at a, uh, a political and, and even legal level. And finally, there's been a lot, you know, this has just come up recently, but I think I should just mention it because it's something 
that we've been grappling with, which is the um, um, horrific uh, um, uh, attack on Lara Logan. Um, <coughs> and uh, after that happened, we got you know a lot of calls. Lara's on our board, and so you know we were obviously very personally concerned. She's very active in CPJ, particularly with our journalist assistance program. Um, and we got a lot of calls, people asking us about um, sexual violence and what do we know about it. And so I wanted to share with you one of the challenges that we're facing, which is we know very little about um, We have documented only a handful of cases. Um, and why is that? And we, we can't really say. We're certainly willing to, to, to document it when these cases are made available to us. Um, it's very possible, and you know, I know. You know, I polled the staff, and I know that there are other cases that we're aware of, either as individuals or even kind of organizationally, that we just people didn't want us to discuss it, so we kept it confidential because we were requested to do so. Um, the other thing that I, you know, the limited data we have suggests that this is a problem uh, that, you know, the, the discussion has been about women and sexual violence, but men also confront this issue. We've seen. Um, a lot of issues in which, I mean, at least the cases that we're aware of, um, about half of them involve men who have been sexually brutalized while in custody. Um, and I think that's an important um, issue. And the other thing is, it's not clear to us um, how many of these, how, how frequently these are <coughs> state-sanctioned, you know, whether they're, you know, just crimes that take place in an atmosphere of um, you know, uh, uh, just a sort of a violent atmosphere, or whether they're you know part of some sort of state-sanctioned policy. And the other thing is, we don't have a clear indication, uh, and I think we need to understand this um, about what the risks are to international correspondents versus local journals. Those are those are some of the challenges. So I just wanted to mention that, obviously something we're talking about internally, something we're grappling with, how best do we handle this, how do we respond, how do we more effectively understand the issue and, and document it, and, uh, you know, I'd actually welcome a uh, discussion on that and, and, and hearing uh, your input and, and your perspective on that issue. So. so this is a terrific way to start. Let me just take the, the, the privilege of asking the first question, because uh, one of the things that seemed noteworthy to me in the last several weeks about what's been going on in the Middle East is that what we think of as good journalism or good journalistic outlets has changed dramatically. Suddenly, Al Jazeera is a heroic news outlet. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seems to me that this goes to an issue not just of censorship, but of self-censorship and also perspective that represent cl clashing cultural norms. How, how does your group deal with this issue underlying the, 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 the direct attempt of governments to coerce journalistic coverage, and, and, and both what, the, what is seen and reported and also how it's seen and reported, and how does one think about Al Jazeera in a context like this? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, Al Jazeera is unbelievably important uh, in, 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 in the Middle East, in that context. In other words, there's a lot of focus on Al Jazeera. Their Super Bowl coverage well, is really... <laughs> I ha I, actually, I missed that, but... Uh, uh, but of Al Jazeera English. Right. And obviously, that played an enormous role. We could talk about that. But the real dynamic is, is involved Al Jazeera in Arabic. Because um, the Egyptian state television was essentially um, 
reporting uh, from you know government propaganda. It creeped right up into the line of incitement to violence. It was absolutely horrible. It was atrocious. It uh, uh, misinformed the Egyptian public and and contributed to the uh, violent atmosphere. And so Al Jazeera was the key sort of feedback loop uh, for the Egyptian public. And that was why um, the Egyptian government was obsessed with Al Jazeera. Uh, they raided the office several times. They, they uh, tried to uh, remove all their cameras. They arrested reporters. Uh, they knocked them off the Nile sat the satellite. They, they really were very, very concerned about this feedback loop where Al Jazeera was intensively covering what was happening in Tahrir Square. It, average Egyptians were watching it because they had access to satellite, and that they were becoming informed, and that was uh, increasing uh, the interest in mobilization. So that was the real target. Al Jazeera English also, um, you know, the, I mean, it was again that that's really kind of a separate issue, but uh, it has to do with you know changes and uh, you know the the the. the, the financial health of media in this country, the number of international bureaus, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we all know Al Jazeera English was in place to cover this story. And, you know, and, and I think a lot of Americans who uh, hadn't watched it before, you know, suddenly started streaming it and they were watching it and going, hey, this is pretty familiar to me. This seems like, you know, a lot of journalism I've seen elsewhere. I don't see what the uh, what the big deal is. Does it then become a concern of a, an organization like yours that Algier is not available in the United States? Well, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it seems... Or is that a commercial? Do you not like to get... Te technically, it's a commercial issue, but it seems crazy to me that, you know, you have this huge international story and uh, the Americans are turning... You know, by I don't know what the numbers are, but a very large number are streaming Al Jazeera online. You would think there would be somebody who would see a commercial potential here and put the damn station on the air. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 a it's kind of there's certainly a commercial dimension to it. It's not a clear cut press freedom issue, but it just seems um, uh, very uh, uh, sad right. to me that Americans didn't have access to Al Jazeera English when it was clearly. Uh, doing a very important job, and the rest of the world essentially did. Yeah. Okay, let me take some questions out here. Yes, right over here. Thank you. Um, thanks for coming. It's a really important <coughs> topic to so many of us. I, I have to say, um, I'm on Twitter. I'm mm -hmm. a mid-career student here at Kennedy School, and I just got back into Twittering a couple days ago yeah. at the insistence of my friends who want to know more yeah. what's going on. And my heart's beating. I woke up this morning to a note that... Uh, Jew Watch USA is now following me on Twitter. <laughs> okay. Revealing Zionist banksters, news falsifiers, PR liars, neocons, Marxists, subversives, terrorists, and spies. And I immediately blocked them. Yeah. But it made me aware that, you know, my real name is on there. If you Google me, you can see that I'm a journalist. Um, and I'm at Harvard. It says I'm in Cambridge. Yeah. It made me nervous, like, that we're putting our stuff out there as right. an individual. It's a very personal tweet. It's not like being under the umbrella of an organization where you have, right. you know, so are you guys following any of those folks? And and I had another incident like that when I was in yeah. South Dakota where I had somebody walk up to well, me and threaten me. Well, I mean, there's so it raises so many issues. I mean, first of all is the issue of, you know, data security for journalists. I mean, mm -hmm. think about your BlackBerry. Think about you're, you're arrested, you're detained in some country 
you know, you may, you may, some, some people walk around, they don't even have like a password on their BlackBerry. Some people have a password, but let me tell you, that's worth nothing. They can break that in two minutes. You've got all your contacts, you've got all your email, you've got everyone you've been in touch with, you know, in two minutes, they know everything they need to know about you. And people walk around with these computers, uh, they're essentially <coughs> computers, uh, in places where, I mean, it's just, it's just a gold mine. So that's one thing to think about. And obviously, you know, I see all these, I mean, I'm following all these journalists who are now, have crossed from um, uh, um, uh, Egypt into Libya. And they're tweeting about what they're seeing. And, uh, you know, that's great because it's, you know, it's the only source of information, but, you know, they're basically advertising their movements. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a very fluid situation, and it could change in a minute. Um, in terms of, you know, I mean, you know, how, it's kind of a separate issue, but, you know, what kind of uh, persona do you want to inhabit on Twitter? Who are you? I mean, you know, it, that, that's, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, that's. I happen to be Jewish, so it was like, was that just like by luck that they happened to follow I, you? I, you know, I have no scary. idea, but, there's, but the thing is it goes, th that's the point I was trying to make. I mean, um, <coughs> it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's like the telephone. You can, you know, you can call people, but that doesn't, you know, somebody can call you and monitor your communication, and it kind of works both ways. And there are all sorts of unsavory types that are using <coughs> social media for all sorts of purposes. And, uh, the, you know, the kind of awareness about this, I think, is, is, is lacking. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if your organization is following those. Mm -hmm. Well, we've seen some, uh, you know, we've seen some threats on Twitter, and we followed that. I mean, even like, you know, I was just looking at like what Nick Kristoff was tweeting about in Bahrain. Mm -hmm. He was basically being threatened mm -hmm. as he was running around Bahrain, and mm -hmm. people were sort of trying, you know, some of the members of the, uh, you know, or people allied with the ruling family uh, were basically inciting uh, people to take action against them. It was very scary. Uh, Richard, I, I want to go on a different slightly different subject, so let's stay with this if others have it in that and come uh, come uh, back back to me when you can. Okay. Over here. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is on or off the subject. Um, I work for the David Rockefeller Center and, and happen to be preparing a issue on the press in Latin America. And you know, I'm hearing these horrendous stories, um, you know, about in, in, in the Mideast and in Mexico and, you know, things that are really life and death. And yet there's a whole series of more subtle and disgusting um, measures um, to tamper press freedom through changing laws, through um, muzzling journalists through ethics kind of proposals for ethics laws, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm wondering, you know, if one had limitless resources, this wouldn't be an issue because there are always issues of press freedom. But how do you, as a not huge organization, work on matters of life and death and also manage to keep track? Right. Well, I mean, I think that one of the things we're really clear about is, you know, we're a press freedom organization. We defend, you know, a, a, a basic human right, which is guaranteed under international law. But our, you know, unlike the larger human rights movement, which is really sort of 
focus is more on policy. If you sort of began as case-based advocacy, but now focuses on on, on policy, where where our emphasis is on in protecting individual journalists. That's the priority for us, and we're very clear about that. I mean, we we, we do do get involved in policy and some of those longer-term issues, uh, but but we focus on defending individual journalists whose ability to report is threatened at the particular moment. And the reason we do that, I think, is sort of borne out by what's happened in um, Egypt or really throughout the Middle East now, which is that if governments can create an environment in which there is an information void, that uh, you know opens the door for broader human rights violations. And so, you know, when the press is under siege covering a specific story, we feel that that is always our priority. We have to step in. We have to advocate as forcefully and, and, and loudly as we can. You know, if you're looking at Latin America, I mean, our whole essay this year, our whole focus is on um, uh, censorship, the return of censorship, and that has both kind of policy implications in a place like Brazil, uh, as I mentioned, to a certain extent, you know, in Venezuela, but if you're looking at a place like Mexico uh, or even Colombia, um, you're talking about self-censorship. You're talking about an environment in which um, <coughs> the level of violence is so great and the level of impunity is so high that journalists uh, are simply unable to report basic news stories. Uh, and so that's also uh, an area where we're both, you know, responding to these individual violations and in trying to engage the government in addressing some of the larger policy issues uh, around, uh, you know, promoting investigations, promoting accountability, and trying to combat impunity. Bob, let me go back to you. Yeah, thanks. On the on the policy on this policy issue you were just talking about, how how do you um, compare yourself in terms of measurement with with reporters without borders? And with the human human rights uh, department <coughs> and the State Department, how, how if we're trying to to ascertain what's really happening to the press and to to reporters, do we go to you first? Do we go to the others? Go to all three at once? Or well, I mean that's kind of like asking if you want to find out what's going on in the world. You read you know the New York Times or the Washington mm -hmm. Post or you know the AP. I mean we're, I mean you know we have um, uh, I mean we certainly consider reporters without borders our colleagues. And we work very closely with them, mm -hmm. collaborate um, uh, with them frequently. We have a slightly different approach. Most of us um, are journalists, former journalists. You know, that's our background. Uh, we're probably, you know, we're, we're, we have a very journalistic approach to, the, to everything we do. They have more of an activist advocacy bent. But, you know, we complement each other very well. And, um, you know, they do things that, you know, we wouldn't do, like, you know, set off stink bombs in front of embassies, you know, but hey, that, that's great. It draws attention. You know, that, that's something they're comfortable with. We're not. Um, uh, but in terms of the documentation, you know, we tend to agree mostly. Um, and where we disagree, it's because, we, you know, we have different sources and, and approach these um, issues differently. The State Department, um, the human rights report that they, they produce, um, uh, that is something we tend to be a source for. I mean, if you look at those, I mean, yes, they rely on their uh, uh, political officers and embassies around the world, but if you actually read those reports, uh, we're cited 
throughout. So that, you know, I think their assessments are largely, uh, you know, or a good part of their assessments are based on our research. Uh, Joel, given the rise of social media, yeah. how does CPJ now strictly define a journalist? Right. It's a lot of journalism, let's say, that we were seeing right. um, from Egypt and in the Middle East is provided by, you know, in, in some <coughs> measure by citizen journalists. Right. And, and, and on whose behalf are you advocating? Well, one of the things that's... Um, Very <laughs> yeah, one of the things that's, that's, that's good about what we do mm -hmm. is because we continue to be a case-based organization, you know, we don't have to answer that question mm -hmm. in the abstract. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're tweeting along and nothing bad happens to you, you know, whether I think you're a journalist or not is kind mm -hmm. of irrelevant. Mm -hmm. um, if you suddenly get arrested or detained or somebody, you know, impedes your ability to do this, mm -hmm. then you kind of take a look at it. And, and, and it's one of those things where if you try to answer the question in the abstract, mm -hmm. you get kind of hung up on mm -hmm. who's a journalist and, the, you know, and it's, <coughs> you go round and round. And if you just read the stuff, mm -hmm. um, you're like, well, you know, this is a journalistic tweet because mm -hmm. what this person is doing is they're describing events mm -hmm. that they're seeing and they're doing it to inform people. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the broad definition that we apply is simply, you know, gathering and disseminating information in the public interest, fact-based commentary, and then you look closely at um, what the person is actually doing. And, you know, if, if a lot of the a lot of journalists now have their own Twitter feeds. And if you, know, you look at most of them, they're very journalistic. Mm -hmm. you know, they're just describing events that they're seeing. It's not very different from the kinds of you know, information they're putting in their stories. Obviously, sometimes it's raw. Sometimes it's not verified. But that doesn't make it uh, essential. It doesn't ma inherently make it uh, less journalistic. So um, I think the basic answer to that is that we take a very common sense approach to the issue. Well, Joel, you might speak to yeah. the cartoonist. I mean, we had a political cartoonist with very small distribution. I can't right. even remember if he this was is putting the out. No, I'm no. sorry. No. I'm sorry. CPJ. Yeah. I'm involved yeah. with CPJ. Whether he was putting it, remember, oh, I think it was basically putting it on fence posts or something. Right. And, but he was arrested for his political views and, yeah, I mean, we've and we dealt ended up, with the CPJ ended up helping yeah. him. Yeah, and S Sandy's on our, on our board, so that's why, you know, um, um, you know we, we, we dealt with this. But I mean, you know, since our, since our beginning, we've dealt with these issues. You know, Sam has died, yeah, you know, publications in the Soviet Union, Tiananmen Square, wall posters, mm -hmm. you know, what are the limits of journalism? And we look at it, I mean, it's, it's obviously, as everything, the whole debate's accelerated now. Uh, but this is not a new issue for us, and throughout our history, we've applied a common sense approach to this. Um, and uh, again, if you kind of look at it, and, and we look at the political context, you know, in other words, you know, a, um, some activity which, uh, you know, if you're writing a political blog in the United States, you know, or France, it may or may not be journalism. But in China, where there's no other political outlet, there's no other outlet for that kind of critical speech, it's, we're more likely to give it the nod. So Joel, is Julian Assange a journalist? Um, it doesn't matter. Okay. And so I'll you guys you, are in his I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why it doesn't matter. It's an interesting debate uh, that journalists are having. But from our point of view, from CPJ's point of view, um, the real issue is what would happen if Julian Assange is prosecuted for disseminating information, classified information. Mm -hmm. And that would have a 
significant and serious impact on mm -hmm. journalism in this country and around the world. So, you know, we've sort of taken <coughs> a pass on the issue because I think it's an important debate, but it's kind of, you can get so tangled up in the debate on whether he's not a journalist or not, and different people have different views, and, and, and frankly, I, you know, do see both sides of that. I mean, you know, he is an activist. Some of the work he does is, is clearly journalistic, and some of it is really hard to describe as journalistic. But the point is, if he's prosecuted, particularly under the Espionage Act, for publishing material, which is essentially a journalistic function, <coughs> then journalists in this country will need to worry. And the other thing that would be particularly um, noteworthy is that it would be an extraterritorial application of the Espionage Act, which is the nature of it. But you know, what would a journal, what would journalists in Colombia, what would journalists, you know, think about in Colombia if they got a hold of some DEA, classified DEA documents about the activities of DEA agents <coughs> in Colombia, and they published that in their newspaper, or a, a newspaper in Yemen found out about you know special forces operations in Yemen, and this was classified and published in their mm -hmm. newspaper. I don't see why they wouldn't have the same exposure. So Do you worry at all about surrogate prosecution? I mean, the way that Al Capone was sent to jail for income tax evasion. Oh, absolutely. Worry uh, about Assange's situation? Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really. Are you talking about the the, the, the rape charges? The rape Sweet. charges. Yeah. You know, obviously, we're monitoring it. I don't see evidence that you know. I know that he's made that claim that this is a. Um, uh, a, uh, <coughs> as you call it, a surrogate prosecution. Yeah, I, I'm not alleging it. I'm just I, saying, what if it what, were? What if it? Well, I mean, it does take Assange out of the picture. Um, of the, I don't <coughs> know the exact numbers, but of the 145 journalists, you know, in jail around the world, a significant number mm -hmm. are in jail for activities, uh, at least ostensibly, completely unrelated to their journalism. We've had Chinese journalists, you know, jail for pimping. You know, we look at what are the what what are the what's the evidence? More like what are the charges? Yes, yeah. you know, uh, and uh, you know, we we take up cases all the time of journalists who are prosecuted uh, for things completely unrelated to journalism, but in instances where we believe it's essentially trumped up prosecution designed to suppress their journalistic work. Did you have more? Yeah. Move on, because he's already answered mine. Okay. Yes. I have a question about stakeholders. And so first of all, I just want to thank you because this has really mm -hmm. um, widened my perspective on what it means to be a journalist under siege. And my perspective had been shaped primarily by the Laura Logan incident, for example, and now I understand it to be Twitter, et cetera. Yeah. So thank you. Um, but my question is about stakeholders and how your organization reaches out to leverage mm -hmm. or to, to uh, manipulate and move the opinions of these stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, on the question regarding the David Rockefeller Center, how, do you, um, how does your organization leverage its resources to move key decision makers in that government to change laws or not act on certain laws that would oppress um, journalistic right. um, publication? And then a second level question is, um, how do you, how does your organization reach out to popular um, baseline? And so, how do you, how do you change public opinion? Do you have a public opinion campaign that you're waging right. in certain countries? Right. Um, well, I mean, changing government behavior is the more a government is concerned about its international reputation, uh, the easier it is to do that. So, you know, if you're dealing with um, Iran, uh, you know, or North Korea, um, you know, which we have had some incidents there, <coughs> uh, your leverage is very limited. 
But one of the things that's surprising is that almost every country, even you know, even North Korea, at some level does care about what the rest of the world thinks of it. And you know, you have to find that point of vulnerability and exploit it. Um, that's not always easy, and um, a lot of governments are, uh, you know, largely impervious. You know, if you're looking at China, uh, for example, we did a lot around the Olympics because we knew that that was a moment when um, they wanted to, you know, put their, you know, most positive image forward, and that they had made a commitment to allow journalists to work freely, I think that normally as they would, you know, covering any other Olympics, and yet they did not fulfill that commitment. So we tried to exploit um, the, the, the gulf between their commitments and, and what they actually did, which was to continue to curtail the work of journalists, particularly Chinese journalists. They did loosen up the environment for international correspondence somewhat. Um, although I can't say that was hugely successful because they made us sort of cosmetics and concessions during the games and you know, basically reinforced their, their more repressive policies afterwards. Um, but you have to look for um, uh, those points of vulnerability. In terms of how we mobilize public opinion, I mean, that's a more complex question. But obviously, we recognize that we benefit um, from the engagement of the media itself. Um, that's a huge advantage. I mean, journalists, mm, understandably and naturally, uh, care about the issue that we work on. We are journalists, so we now have presented in a way that's, uh, uh, you know, will engage journalists themselves. We know, we know we're very, because we're journalists, we're very focused on uh, being accurate and being um, timely. Um, we always have a point of view, but we also, um, you know, are very um, meticulous in applying repertorial standards to everything that we do. Yep. Um, Joe, you mentioned that CPJ had added someone recently yeah. um, for the purpose of trying to help keep the internet open yeah. in repressive countries. And since CPJ is a case-based organization, what practically can it do toward that goal? Or can any organization or the U.S. government yeah. or anybody else do toward keeping the internet open? Yeah, I mean, it's really been a fascinating um, experience. Um, and there's lots of things going on. And one of the things that we've been doing is at interacting directly with the companies that are sort of providing the backbone uh, of, you know, and the, essentially providing <coughs> the platforms for these new technologies. And those companies have not always lived up to the kind of standards that you'd expect. And one of the most notorious example is the, you know, uh, Chinese journalist named Shir Tao, who uh, essentially uh, had received uh, classified instructions from the Chinese government about how to cover the Tiananmen Square anniversary and forwarded them on to contacts outside the country, uh, and the Chinese government was able to essentially prevail <coughs> upon Yahoo to turn over this information, and they used that as the basis for putting them in jail. So uh, these companies need to be educated about how their uh, technologies are being used, and one of the things we've done is um, uh, our internet advocacy coordinator, Dan Debra, is actually based in San Francisco and he's developed relationships with many of these companies. And just to give a couple of examples, there was an Ethiopian uh, uh, newspaper that, after it was shut down, essentially, um, you know, began publishing on Facebook. 
and the Ethiopian government apparently, we don't know this for sure, but we suspect that they basically got their supporters to complain about, you know, the material that was, that was being published and Facebook just pulled the plug, just mm. shut them down, knocked them off Facebook. And so we basically called Facebook and said, do you know what you just did? And they said, well, we got a lot of complaints. And we said, well, do you know why you got a lot of complaints? Do you know what you did? And they, were, they basically restored it. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, you know, we knew that... Um, Can I make a MasterCard donation to <laughs> Julian Assange? <laughs> has, uh, has that been successful in turned around? <laughs> What's that? The, the ability to make a Master <laughs> MasterCard donation <laughs> to... Uh, WikiLeaks? I don't know the answer to yeah. that. I don't know. We may be doing better in Ethiopia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, keep going. And um, uh, another example is that, you know, you're, when you log on to Facebook, <coughs> that little, you, you know, um, login is not encrypted. So the Tunisian government was capturing people's passwords. And, you know, we, we got in touch with oh, Facebook and oh we said, man. hey, you've got to encrypt that page. And should, well, we think everything on Facebook should be encrypted. But, you know, the point is Twitter, Facebook, blogs, emails, these are all things that journalists employ. These are all platforms that are being used to disseminate information, to carry out journalistic activities. And, you know, there are some simple steps that journalists themselves can take to protect this data, protect their information, but there are steps that these companies have to take. And the other thing that has to happen is there has to be um, engagement at the political level um, by governments, by the U.S. government, for example. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about technological, you know, sort of um, solutions to some of these problems, you know, proxy servers and, um, uh, you know, other kinds of, um, uh, you know, encryption and all these things are valuable, but at the end of the day, you know, we see in, in Libya right now, we saw in Egypt that, you know, when a government wants to unplug the Internet, you can unplug the Internet. That is possible. People really wondered whether it was possible. We now know the answer is yes, it is possible. So the only way to combat that, there's really no technical solution to that. It has to be a, it has to be a political uh, issue. And a, and a country that sort of unplugs the Internet, you know, needs to face serious sanctions as a result. That needs to be perceived as an activity, um, you know, outside the bounds of, uh, or, or put this way, a clear and, and egregious violation of um, uh, international human rights law. So in, in, in Egypt, even before Lara Logan, there are a lot of journalists mm -hmm. who are getting attacked. Right. And, um, you know, starting with Anderson Cooper and a lot right. of foreign journalists. Right. So. How, I mean, how do you, in a very practical sense, how did you deal with that? Did you have this rapid response team? Right. Um, who did you appeal to? I'm just kind of <clears throat> curious about when you were kind of in, in that mode, dealing with this stuff on a kind of almost hourly basis. Well, I mean, I think that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a situation for the most part in which you could, you know, find a figure uh, in Egypt and make a direct appeal. In some instances, you know, that didn't happen, but most of the time what you were doing is, you know, trying to allow the story about the media repression to get as much coverage as possible as a way of pressuring the Egyptian government to 
um, uh, reverse this policy and exposing the fact, which they didn't want exposed, that this was a concerted and systematic effort that was carried out by the government. Mm -hmm. This wasn't just a bunch of you know random thugs running around beating people up. This was a concerted action. And because we were able to document it mm -hmm. so quickly, we were able to see the pattern, <coughs> establish the pattern, expose the pattern, and then, you know, disseminate this. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we were creating through this strategy of documentation and, and discussing it, um, a level of political accountability that was directly, you know, attributable to the Mubarak government. And the other thing that happened was, was very interesting, you know, there's a lot of focus here on, you know, U.S. journalists who were attacked, and you mentioned Anderson Cooper, and we saw that, you know, Christian Amanpour's windshield was smashed, but we know what happened to Lara, that was obviously later on. But one of the things that people didn't necessarily perceive is by, you know, this systematic effort made the attacks on journalists a local story in almost every country in the world. Mm -hmm. So before it was this kind of abstract, you know, Egyptians are getting beat up, and da da da, and then it became, you know, the correspondent for Greek television today was beaten up, and Greeks were like, "Well, that's outrageous." And the course, you know, you know, Australian correspondent in New Zealand and China and Pakistan, and these journalists were from all over the world, and it became a local story in each one of these countries. And that, in fact, I think, um, created more interest, more um, uh, attention. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really, ironically, backfired in a lot of ways. Uh, have the attacks on <coughs> journalists in various places made news gathering organizations here and elsewhere change their policies about <coughs> where they will send people and whom they will send? Well, and other things? I think that there's been a real, um, you know, transformation. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about is, you know, the other the other interesting statistical change that we've seen is more and more journalists who are in prison around the world are freelancers. And we know that frontline news gathering, more and more um, the people who are carrying out that ac activity are freelancers and local journalists. You know, that, that's the kind of food information food chain now. They're obviously more vulnerable. You know, they can't be pulled out of the country necessarily. <coughs> they don't have huge resources. Um, and, you know, sometimes those local journalists feed, you know, major Western news organizations and you know, that's how the information gets out there. Sometimes the local journalists working for, you know, local media outlets, but still, you know, international correspondents covering these issues rely on, you know, the domestic media as the first source of information. So, um, you know, that's one way in which, in which um, international coverage has changed. There are, uh, there's more information available, but in most places fewer professional journalists, at least internationally, uh, working for international media organizations. The other thing is, you know, there's been a lot more um, awareness, this is a much longer term trend, about uh, safety and security in most media organizations. I mean, in the time that I've been at CPJ, for example, you know, something that really didn't exist when I started a little more than a decade ago were, you know, sort of hostile environment training courses and um, and you know um, a tr you know better training for journalists who are going out on dangerous assignments uh, even things like you know counseling for journalists who covered uh, um, you know traumatic events um, so I think there's a greater awareness in media organizations about these issues uh, but at the end of the day there's reduced foreign staff in most media US media organizations and fewer resources 
Yeah, Joel, I'm sorry I came in late, yeah. so maybe you talked about this, but uh, I'm from Pakistan, yeah. and um, uh, I, your report says there's eight confirmed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The motives are confirmed. There's yeah. over 30 killed, though, uh, last year, mm-hmm. where the motives, um, which means the majority of the, uh, the journalists killed, uh, the motives haven't been confirmed. And I know your website, I was just yeah. checking it before yeah. I came, I know that that's sort of updated it on the book, yeah. so there's more motives confirmed on your website. But... Um, it's a lot of it really, uh, there's a, there's a build-up to it most of the time. Um, I was freelancing last year and I was also doing some reporting for the Indians, which is not a, well, it's, it's not recommended if you're in Pakistan. And I changed cities um, uh, because of it. So it, it, was, it was getting hairy. And the thing is that I'm just going to try to draw a parallel here. So Transparency International. Mm-hmm. which has nothing to do with what you guys do, but let's just say that it's, 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 a, it's a parallel world there. These guys run ads almost on a monthly basis, encouraging people to report uh, uh, incidents of well, the lack of transparency. So there's a hotline set up, there's email addresses, there's a Facebook page. It's a new concept in Pakistan. Right. But for journalists, which is obviously a much more smaller group than people who would be, uh, the guys who would be applicable for the TI, um, there's no real hotline, there's no real rapid response team, there's no real, because, I mean, having been threatened, I'm not going to get into, uh, like, the, the exact details, but I've been threatened, right? So, um, and it just gets worse, because when they know you don't have the cover of a larger media organization, mm-hmm. um, what do you do as a journalist? Do you get pulled out? Do you do you apply? Because I, I, I applied here, that's what I did. I right. left, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so, so, thank you. So, um, not everybody can, though. Not everybody can, uh, especially the guys working for the small outlets yeah. out in the countryside. So, is there some sort of mechanism? well? I mean, there's there's a sort of a compound question there. I mean, first of all, you know, we have a journalist assistance program. We've actually worked with a lot of Pakistani journalists, helping them, you know, leave the country, go into exile, uh, resettle elsewhere. I mean, we don't always publicize these because things because they don't necessarily want it publicized. But uh, you know, that does happen. Journalists have to leave. Uh, it's very, it's a terrible situation, you know, when you need to go into exile because there's no guarantee uh, that you'll be able to continue to do journalism. You don't know when you're going to go back, but we certainly have provided assistance uh, in those instances. Um, you know, many countries have their own national um, uh, press freedom organizations. You know, we tend to work with them, you know, Transparency International sort of as a chapter system. We tend to work directly with the with national press freedom organizations. Pakistan has several. It's you know the the, the um, um, they're all union based. Though. Well, there's the the um, uh, PFF, the PFUJ. P- no, the, uh, no, that I'm talking about the Ovaisalis, uh, right. or the Pakistani. Can't remember what it's P- PFF, but in any case, you know we tend to work with them. There are also union based groups in Pakistan, as you know, the PFUJ that you just mentioned. Um, but, you know, that's, that's usually the way that these situations play out, is that journalists first, <coughs> you know, contact their, you know, domestic, some domestic group that works nationally or sometimes it's union-based, and then, you know, we step in to provide support and sort of amplify those concerns, and we also step in when appropriate to work directly with journalists who um, are victimized or, say, they're jailed or they have to leave their country or they face other kinds of abuse. We are coming up on the one o'clock hour, and I want to thank Joel Simon for a terrific presentation mm-hmm. and all of you for a lively exchange. So, Joel. Thank you very much.